Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. So glad to have you here with us today for episode 397 of the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, I am thrilled to welcome the one and only Shep Hyken and uh, have the opportunity to hear more of his story. Now, in his early 20s, uh, Shep determined that he was going to go into the speaking business. And honestly, the, the rest is kind of history, but we're going to obviously dig into that today. He was really grounded by key principles and values that were instilled by his parents at a young age. And Shep has really carried these practices through each decade, yes, decade of his business's growth. He's been at this for a while, so he's got a, a lot to teach us, a lot for us to learn. He was really determined to reach others with his knack for entertainment, his heart for customer service, and he really created his own business plan by beginning with the end in mind. During our conversation, Shep is going to be giving insight on the numbers game of speaking, why one gig should lead to another, and also how to face imposter syndrome with courage and humility. He's also going to unpack the importance of sales and marketing, follow-up, and why the job is not actually doing the speech, but rather getting the speech. His consistency and perseverance have allowed for sustainable growth and continued relevance as he has adjusted to the needs of his audience. Shep is one of the best in the business. He's been at this for nearly as long as I've been alive. He's really an advocate for the sweat equity that it takes to be a successful entrepreneur, and his own story is evidence of just that. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, so let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Shep Hyken on building a successful speaking business. Enjoy. What's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Glad you're joining us today. Today, we're talking with one of the speaking legends, uh, Mr. Shep Hyken. So, Shep, thanks for hanging out with us today. We appreciate it. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. We were uh, we spent a lot of time before we hit record here just talking through all things St. Louis sports and connecting. And uh, so that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. So why don't we first start by kind of painting the picture for us. You've been in the speaking industry for a long time. Why don't you give us the, the bio of uh, who do you speak to? What do you speak about? How does speaking fit into your world? Sure, sure. And the reason for the St. Louis discussion is that's where I'm from. And, mm -hmm. and that's where, uh, Grant, that's where you grew up near St. Louis in Springfield, right. uh, which is probably just a few hours south of here. Anyway, uh, I started my business a long time ago, right out of college. So I could tell you I was about uh, 22, almost turning 23 uh -huh. when I decided this is the business I wanted to get into. Saw a couple of amazing speakers and by the way, let's go back to my first paid gig, which was at age 12. And it was a birthday party magic show no where way. I was paid to do magic tricks at a, for a bunch of screaming kids, right? You remember and what you so were paid? I remember what I was paid. I was paid $15 and I got a dollar tip. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, that is where several things happened at that moment. I realized this is a lot of fun. My parents taught me a couple of really good business lessons, which I still believe in today. 
Uh, my mom said, write a thank you note to the people that hired mm -hmm. you. So whether it's a, a note, a bomb bomb video, which we use that today, we, you know, I'll shoot an email, very personalized uh, with maybe some attachments of photos and things like that from the event. But you do that, you show appreciation. My dad said, call the parents who hired me a week later, thank them again, ask them for feedback. And what he said was, don't just ask, did you like the show or not like the show? Ask what they really liked in the show. Yeah. Get specific. And what we were looking for is, and it was, what tricks did you like? But as a speaker, it's like, was there a point that I made that really stood out? That kind of question. And what you'll eventually hear is a bunch of the same points mm -hmm. or a bunch of the same tricks for back at Get Doing Magic shows. And what you won't hear are the tricks they didn't like, yeah. or you won't hear the points that didn't make impact. So it's a great, very specific question to ask. Was there, a, in today's world for me, was there a specific point or two in the speech that stood out as most actionable and relevant to your audience? And when you get that information, you can start to work and take out what isn't being talked about and replace it with things that will hopefully be talked about. And that's how you keep getting your speech to be better and better. And that's how I made my magic show better and better. And of course, you know, um, I noticed there were a bunch of parents sitting in the back uh, watching the show. Would you mind sharing those names and numbers with me? I'd love to do their kids magic show too. Yeah. My dad taught me that at age 12 to ask yeah. that question, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I would get the names of the parents in the back. And within a matter of, I don't know, maybe a year, I'm doing like eight to 10 magic shows every single wow. week. My parents are going crazy trying to figure out how to drive me around to all these shows. That's amazing. <laughs> but, but so anyway, we jump, uh, graduate college, looking for something to do. And I was working, uh, believe it or not, uh, my family owned some gas stations. I was working at the gas stations and in their offices. And I, they sold the company like right out of college. They sold mm. them. Well, now what am I supposed to do? I thought right, this right. is what I was going to do. And I saw these motivational speakers, Zig Ziglar and Tom Hopkins. And I uh -huh. said, now I know what I'm going to do. I had the entertainment background and that's where it started. I said, I can write a speech. I can do this. And I, I bought the book, uh, How to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Hopkins. I bought the audio cassettes, See You at the Top, which was the Zig Ziglar cassettes. Mm -hmm. And I remember just devouring those over the next few days. And I created a plan. And the, there were two parts to the plan. The plan, the first plan was 10 years. This is what I need to make this year, all the way up to what I want to make it uh, by the time I hit age 32. So remember, I'm out of college. I'm just turning 23. Now I'm going to be uh, 10 years out. I created this 10-year plan. And then I said, now I got to create the plan to make that plan happen. I did not know what I was doing worked, uh, meaning I started with the end in mind. And today when speakers ask me, how can I get into this business? What should I do? I said, start with the end in mind and let's start with the outcome. How much money do you need to make or want to make yeah. next year? the year after. So I suggest going out a few years, but you got to think short-term and long-term. And if you start with the end in mind, then you work backwards. Well, I want to make, let's just make it easy. I want to make $12,000 this year speaking. That means I need to make $1,000 a month. If I'm charging $250 over a speech, that means I need to get booked four times a month, 48 times a year in order for me to make my goal. Yeah. So that's exactly how I was thinking back then. And it's still how I think today. But the important part of the next uh, piece of it is how do I make that happen? And that was in Tom Hopkins' book. I got to sell it. I can't just build it and they will come. That happens in the movies, Field of Dreams, but it's not going to happen in real life 
in the speaking business. Yeah. So there, I actually just took a picture of the World News Stand, which is in Clayton, Missouri. I now live in Clayton, Missouri, and I live literally two blocks from World News, and they're shutting down. That place was in business when I was a little kid. My dad would pick up his newspapers and magazines at World News. But at age 20, or, yeah, 22 or 23, 1983 is when that was. So you can do the math. I know bald guys, by the way, and you and I can relate to this. Bald guys don't show their age until one day they just do. So well, like, I'm going to look the same until I'm like age 75. <laughs> Between age 50 and 75, not much aging going on there because you shaved off all the gray hair. This is right? true. This is true. <laughs> anyway, I digress. But uh, back then, 1983, I go to the newsstand. I buy four or five magazines. And I, there were business magazines. I can't remember what the names of them were, but maybe it was Business Week or whatever. Pull out the ads. Full page ads means they can afford a speaker because they have a full page ad. They got to be selling something. They got to have money to put a full page ad in. They probably have a meeting. I'm going to find out who to talk to. So I get the ads, stack them up. I got a couple hundred of them. Go to the library. There's no internet back then. And I do research and I get the names of the the, the VPs of marketing and sales or the chief CMO or whatever it is. And in smaller businesses, especially on a local level, I got the names of the owners and presidents of these companies. And of course, I called on big companies like Anheuser-Busch and Ralston Purina, companies that were based in St. Louis, Monsanto, yep. Boeing, which was McDonnell Douglas back then. Anyway, calling on all these people and I had my plan and I wrote it out and I, what I'm going to say to these and I smiled and dialed. And uh, I remember having index cards when everybody any, any showed any interest, I'd write down what it was, what was my follow-up date. And I had index cards in a little box with one through 31 for the month. And then I had, and that's how I, that was wow. my CRM. Yep, <laughs> you know, yep. my, Primitive my, CRM. Yeah. So uh, that's how I started. And my friend, Bud Dietrich, who I I'll affectionately call my illegitimate father, he passed away. He was in his nineties just recently. He was my mentor, one of my mentors. And what he said to me is, Shep, what you're getting ready to do is not an easy business, but there's no reason you can't be extremely successful. This is my thought. If you would spend 40 hours a week at working on the business, getting business, okay, that's the key. Get business for 40 hours a week, you'll be successful. During that 40 hours, that does not include writing a speech, practicing a, spe a speech, or doing anything related to the actual product. You can do that on evenings and weekends. But during the day, you need to be talking to clients. Yeah. So I came up with this idea. I wanted to do 100 uh, uh, people a week was my goal. Try to make 100 connections. Well, I realize you call people, they're not there. They don't call back. And I recognize, but I could still do 20 calls a day, 25 calls a day. And that's what I did. I smiled and dialed. And I realized that about maybe, uh, I'm going to say back then, I could actually get to about 15% of the people. So mm -hmm. in 100 calls, I'd talk to 15 people. Maybe one or two would be interested in what I had to do mm -hmm. and, and, and sell them. And out of the one or two, if I got 10 of those, one of them were going to buy. Yep. Okay. So it's a numbers game. And Tom Hopkins taught me that in his book. It's all about numbers. If you understand and you figure out, if I make 100 calls, I'm going to get, you know, or three for every 300 calls I make, not connections, but actually dials, yeah. I'm going to probably talk to maybe 35, 40 of the 40, I'm going to have uh, five of those people interested. Uh, so maybe it's going to take 600 calls. But I do that after five or six weeks, I'm going to book a speech. Now, here's the thing. Boy, that's a lot of work. Yes, it is. But how do you get started otherwise? 
I was, I had a, I know I seem to be doing better than that, but from the standpoint of just that strategy alone, it was about 15% of the 15% that were interested in me mm-hmm. to give you an idea, but I had to get to the 15% that seemed interested. And that took uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred plus calls yeah. to get to 15 people that, well, well uh, I should say it, 15 people I connected with 15% of those people said they were interested in me and about one or two of those 10. So about 15% of those people would book me. So you get the, you know, you got to do a lot of calls to get that. But if you're good, a speech should beget another speech. Now I was rogue. When I say rogue, I went five years without being a member of the national speakers association before I was smart and finally joined a friend of mine, Tom Riley kept saying, you got to join, you got to join, you got to join. Finally did best thing I ever did. So I did this and I started realizing that everything I was doing was right. I could just do it better Mm. because I met a lot of people that show me how to make it better. And with, I was already pretty successful back then, but I was even more successful after my first year or two in the association, learning what I learned. And what's amazing is you can go to a session that says, you know, never cold call again, just use direct mail. And this was just about the time the internet was starting. So they weren't even talking about email. It was actual mail, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then uh, I would go to the next session that says, don't waste your money mailing everybody. Just pick up the phone and call them. <laughs> so like, well, which one is right? Right. And eventually I realized they're both right. You just have to figure out what works for you and maybe do a combination. So my first clients, I was very lucky. I had a bunch of smaller companies here in St. Louis, but my big clients were Anheuser-Busch, who they booked me for the first, they were actually the first company to sign a contract with me. The second one was Enterprise Rent-A-Car, mm-hmm. but the Enterprise booking came before the Anheuser-Busch booking. Do you know, uh, up until COVID a couple of years, you know, prior to that, that year before COVID or maybe two years, I was still doing work for Anheuser-Busch and Enterprise wow. <laughs> at a dramatically different fee, I might add. Yeah. But, but I remember... Uh, the um, Anheuser-Busch event, the gentleman said to me, you know, we could use you a lot if you would, and he told me what I needed to do. And I did and averaged 25 dates a year with them for the next 10 years, which is pretty good. The other big client I had that used me again and again was General Motors. Now, remember, I was a magician and they liked that entertainment value. So I had that and I would go to work at like, if there was an auto show, which are these big like ginormous shows with all the automobiles from the manufacturers, I would be brought in to entertain the public for a little bit of the time, but also in the mornings before the show opened, I would talk to the uh, dealers and all of the salespeople doing a speech. Maybe they'd send me to a dealership. I'd, I did a lot of work where I'd be in the city for like a week and they would send me to three or four dealerships in the morning to go talk to their personnel about how they can create a better service experience. So anyway, that's how it all started. And uh, today I'm very lucky. I'm still doing it. It's been uh, almost 40 years now. Can wow. you believe it? Yeah, it's Amazing. a long time. Next Amazing. year will be 40 years in business. You have, uh, you've obviously built a very, very successful career. You raised a bunch of questions for me within this. So I'm curious, even if we go back to when you're in your early 20s there, doing some of the first gigs, or even just deciding that I, I want to do this, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people listening who've been in that spot of, thinking about, I want to do this, or I could I do this? And a lot of times what sets in is just that imposter syndrome of, of who am I to think that I should get up on stage, let alone be paid for it. Oh, I know, believe me. 
I, I felt that. Well, no, especially like when in your early 20s, because I was in the same spot where I was early 20s and like the, some of those first gigs where I was the youngest person in the room thinking like, what, what did I have to bring to the table here? So did you feel a lot of that early on? Do you still feel okay. any of that today? In the 1980s, and I don't, I'm going to ask you a question. You probably don't know the answer, but just in case you do, I'd be really impressed. Who do you think the number one customer service company was back in the 1980s? The one that everybody said they give the best service. I'll give you a hint. I, I want to uh, say Xerox. You're very, very close. Okay. Right. Very close. You're in the genre, but Xerox was known for their sales, but not for their service. There was a company that had a high priced item that businesses bought, but price became inconsequential compared to all the benefits at the top, the quick response, the fast repairs, et cetera. So it was IBM. Okay. Okay. Big Blue. IBM is a completely different company today, as is Xerox for that matter. Mm -hmm. But IBM hired me at the age of 25, maybe, to do a speech on customer service for a bunch of IBM people. Are you kidding me? You talk about an imposter syndrome. I'm going, what do I have to share? And the guy said, just give them the basics. That's what they need to hear again and again. They need to hear the basics. And that, by the way, was my first speech with Anheuser-Busch was called Back to Basics. It was the basics of relationship building which you do through customer service. Now, customer service is not a department always. It's sometimes just the way you take care of people and the way you interact with them. And that's what I was going for. And that was working and they hired me. And I, believe me, I thought, oh, and I was paralyzed with fear at times as to whether I could actually do this or not. Gosh, I remember back in the day, uh, you know, when clients would call me, if the audience was more than 250, 300, I'd start to get real nervous and eventually overcame it. You know, sometimes you just got to do it. When I was a kid doing magic, I joined the magic clubs, uh, the International Brotherhood of Magicians and the Society of American Magicians. And they had monthly meetings. And I made it a point to learn a trick and do it in front of an audience every meeting. And I perfected the trick, but I was not a great performer. And I would yeah. shake. My legs would be shaking while I'm doing these magic tricks in front of these people who are very good entertainers in their own right. And, and uh, I got I got pretty comfortable with it. And I be the more you do, you build your chops. I mean, that's what yeah. you have to do. But that's how it all started. And, and looking back, I, I'm not sure what your original question was. Hopefully I've answered it. But oh, the imposter. Imposter. Yeah, yeah. I, think. I think because I was focusing, I, I got lucky. I, I talked about back to basics in your 20s. You can talk about the basics. <laughs> you can't talk about high end sophisticated strategy as if you've been out there for decades like I can today, I couldn't have done what I did. I can't do that uh, back in my 20s, but I can do it today because, you know, I evolved. Um, I did have regular jobs growing up. And a lot of what I talked about and the stories I shared were based on those experiences. And then the company started sharing with me what they want me to put in the speech. That was part of my pre-program questionnaire eventually was like, what do you want? What, what stories do you have that would be interesting to share with the audience? Is there an accolade? You know, have you won an award? How did you win it? Would you like me to talk to your top people? Uh, who do you recognize that I can? And I would do this and I would say, you know, uh, like if you were in, you know, I talked to Grant three weeks ago as I was preparing for the speech. He yeah. shared a really interesting story. Let me just give you the quick version of it. Well, people go, oh, you talked to Grant. <laughs> so right. that's, that's the way it worked. 
Hey friends, do you know the five steps to book more gigs and get paid as a speaker? Well, if not, listen up because these same five steps that help me to grow a seven-figure speaking career are all laid out in great detail in my latest book, The Successful Speaker. Five steps for booking gigs, getting paid, and building your platform. Whether you want to speak as a side hustle or your dream is to become a full-time professional speaker, I know what it takes. I share all of that with you in this definitive step-by-step roadmap. Let me be your guide. Learn from my mistakes. Get paid what you know you're worth to share your unique message on stage. If you want to read the first chapter for free or just check out the book, go to thespeakerlab.com slash book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash book. Check out your copy of The Successful Speaker. I also want to go back to something you talked about where, especially early on, and I'm assuming this is also continued to be the case for you, that kind of a misconception with, with especially newer speakers is you assume that, that so much of speaking is, is actually speaking and standing on stage and doing the, you know, the, the glamorous, sexy part of standing mm-hmm. ovations and people laughing and smiling and, and taking pictures with people and signing autographs. And, you know, there, there is that part, but there's also like the, so much of being a speaker is, is sales and marketing and yep. spending so much time actually you know, mining and sourcing for gigs and following up on gigs and just follow up, follow up, follow up, follow up. How much of that has continued to be the case for you versus what was early on for you? So uh, first of all, let me give you a line that I've been using when my illegitimate father, Bud Dietrich, my mentor said to me what he told me, 40 hours a week working. To paraphrase, the job is not doing the speech. The Mm -hmm. job is getting the speech. Yeah. Big difference. And if you confuse the two, you're never going to even get to the real success. You've got to work at getting the speech. There are a few people, lucky as they are, celebrities, maybe something happened to them where the phone just rings off the hook because of something they did or something that happened to them. That doesn't happen to me. I'm talking about a topic where the competition, there's a lot of people that can do customer service programs, right? So um, today, most of my business is made through um, reputation and content marketing. Uh, repeat business, obviously, and referrals, mm-hmm. but new business comes from that. It doesn't come from me picking up the phone and smiling and dialing. But I will use LinkedIn as a great resource to say, we, you know, well, even just today, I read an article about one of my colleagues that's speaking in an event next month. Huh, I should be speaking at that event. So basically I copy the link to the article. I sent it over to Cindy in my office. And I said, uh, there are events in May and June, we should be in touch with them because if they've used this person, they'll probably want to use me. I may even call the speaker and ask, Hey, would you tell me who you, uh, talk to? And is it okay if I tell them that you gave me your name and, uh, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I would do the same thing for anyone who I trust to do a great job, a, a true colleague who I feel is great to follow me as well. But so we will get on LinkedIn. We'll learn about who they are. Um, by the way, I just, I'm uh, transitioning over to using uh, SpeakerFlow, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, who is also exhibiting at the February meeting that you were at. Yeah, um, yeah. And great guys. one of the I really like is, so I have a form on my uh, website that you get free research and you get onto my weekly newsletter. But I, here's what's really cool. It, just the way it worked is better than the system that I have. I can get the same information. But I just started, I saw it a different way. I see the name of the person that signed up. I have no idea who they are. But I look at the, at whatever company they're at, and I go, okay, I wonder what they do for that company. 
go on LinkedIn, find out what they do. They're a decision maker. Yeah. Boom. I just noticed you signed, you know, LinkedIn direct. The LinkedIn is the new version of the telephone, I guess, is yeah. what, what I'm trying to get at. And I'm not making a hundred contacts a week like I used to, but I am still saying, you know what, once in a while, outward bound marketing or outbound marketing is still a very good thing to do. Outbound calling. And just using LinkedIn a different way. Hey, I noticed you signed up for my newsletter. I'd love to stay in touch with you here in LinkedIn. Um, you know, you accept. Now I'm going to send you maybe my annual research report is a little good, but I'm going to do it real soft. And that's all I do. Now they're in my world. And if they want me, they want me. Now, back in the day, if I talked to somebody, when would you like me to call you again? When's your meeting going to be? I had a series of questions that I would ask to know when the right time is to get back in touch. You hardly ever call anybody up out of the cold and say, hey, Grant, my name's Shep Hike and I'm a speaker. Yep. I understand you're the person in charge of the meetings. And and do you use professional speakers? Yes. Yep. Yes. Great. 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 When's your next meeting? Well, it's going to be January 2023. Well, we're in April right now, 2023, almost May. And, um, you know, it's like, well, when do you start planning for the program? September. Well, any chance you'd book me today for that event? No, there's no chance. I'm not even <laughs> going to ask. Okay. And of course, I'll put in my little file call. Now, if we strike up a conversation, if in other words, I've set the, I've planted the seed now with this right. potential client. They've signed up for my newsletter. Maybe I've sent them a connection on LinkedIn. If somehow or another we start to interact, I'm going to ask those questions over a period of interactions and know when the right time is. Would you mind if someone from my office got in touch with you about your meeting in September when you start to plan? Boom, done. And so, and by the way, the difference between now and back then is back then it was, do you mind if I get in touch with you? Now it's, do you mind if my people get in touch with you? <laughs> well, and to that end, I think that that's also a big challenge for a lot of speakers early on is uh, the sales and marketing can be very intimidating. And we always, we were always looking for someone else to do it. And so, you know, oftentimes we're asking, I'm sure you as well is like, how do I get in touch with an agent or how do I get in touch with a bureau? Or, how do I get in touch with someone mm -hmm. else that will do this for me? And, and for the most part, that's, that's, that's going to be for a very small group of speakers where that's going to make a lot of sense, but early on it, it's you promoting yourself. And so right. and you, you have to be willing to do that. And, and I was uh, brought up when all the different jobs I had growing up, one of my managers, bosses, whatever you want to call them, said, I would never ask you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. So one day I put this guy to the test. I was outside trying to cut these weeds away from a fence. And he, he drives in and I was the maintenance guy of a building one summer. And, and I'm like 14, 15 years old. And these weeds are taller than me and they're huge and I'm struggling. And I, I said to him, I said, you know, I remember when you told me you wouldn't ask me to do anything you haven't done before. <laughs> Got any ideas? And he came over took off his jacket, rolled up his sleeves and started whacking weeds. Wow. <laughs> you know? So I think that if you're going to ask somebody to sell for you, you better learn how to sell yourself the best way first so right. that you can impart that wisdom as to what's been working. Granted, there are people out there that are professional salespeople that know how to do it on their own. But if you're going to bring somebody in and have them learn and work with you on your business, and that's what I did. Lois Kramer, who's very, very well known in her industry, she worked in for Louis, almost yeah. four years yeah, before she went out on her own. And she knew nothing about the speaking business, nothing at all. Um, I, I'm not so sure how much I knew back then either, but whatever we were doing, it was working. And, and uh, you know, when, when she was at the winter meeting for the National Speakers mm -hmm. Association uh, this past February, the reason, um, and I was 
honored to be asked to chair this meeting. I called her up. I said, we need somebody to talk about the very traditional way of getting business. I can't think of a better person than you. Yeah. And uh, it was just wonderful to see her. By the way, I got to tell you, if you've seen Lois, I know a number of the people listening to this probably have, you know, Lois, she's very, very funny and yes. she's engaging on stage and she's real too. She's not slick. Uh, like, um, you know, somebody that's polished doing 250 speeches a year. I mean, she's, that would be great to do 250, wouldn't it? No, it wouldn't. Your life would be miserable. Yep. This is true. <laughs> Although I will tell you the reason I think I got good quickly at what I did is because I did come from that entertainment background. And when yeah. I worked in a nightclub, uh, Friday and Saturday nights doing three shows a night, that's six, six, uh, performances a week, just there, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it helps when you're growing up doing that, you know, 10 magic shows a week for little kids screaming at you. That's your toughest audience you're ever going to have. Anyway, I digress. So Lois, uh, you know, the traditional sales, but Lois would say to me, Shep, I had a nightmare. Couldn't sleep the whole night. Why? I dreamed that you got sick and I had to get up on stage and talk to these people. <laughs> I was petrified. And now she gets up in front of the most you know, uh, I think discriminating audience of, and that's professional speakers. Okay. Yep, yep. And she nails it. So. That's funny. Well, you, I think one of the things that, that's interesting about you is obviously you've been in the industry for several decades coming up on, on 40 years. Like, like you said, you have seen a lot of different shifts in the industry mm-hmm. uh, from, you know, recessions and nine 11 and pandemics. And obviously the pandemic has been something kind of new, hopefully more and more we're coming out of that. You know, we, when we were at the, the winter conference together a couple months ago, you know, I think that was kind of a big sentiment of, Hey, we're, we're on the tail end of this and live events are coming back yep. and virtual is they still are coming here. back. What, yep. what are you kind of seeing? And in, uh, in terms of the industry right now and kind of where things may or may not be heading over the next few years? Sure, sure. Well, I, I do not, all my, a couple of my friends go, oh, it's, it's like things are as good, if not even better than before the pandemic. And you know what I say? <laughs> Bullshit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's not quite the way it is for most of it, us, uh, including myself. Now, I have gone through a bunch of changes. Like you said, in the late 1980s, we went to the Gulf War. And that's the first time I noticed lead times going from anywhere from six months to a year. When I first started in September, I could tell you what 75%, maybe not quite, 50 to 75% of my year was going to be the following year. Wow. Because I had clients that were booking a year in advance. Right. right? And we got to the late 1980s. I believe it was the Gulf War. It was it was a war. And uh, all of a sudden that that time shrunk down to like three to six months. Mm-hmm. It's never changed. It's been three months or less. I think uh, average, maybe two, three months out is when we're getting booked today. We never got back to the majority of clients or at least half or more booking um, that far out in advance. Associations tend to do it in the, uh, corporate events. Not so much. They'll sometimes wait till a week before. So today, as we come out of the uh, pandemic, I believe we're, we're seeing light at the end of the tunnel, more and more events compared to last year and the year before, that's for sure. But um, I think people are still feeling comfortable. I had a client that we had a booking in April say, look, we're just not comfortable with, you know, with Omicron, Delta, and now this new, whatever it is coming out, we're shifting and they pushed the date to October. Hmm. So and uh, I don't know what that cost them in their hotel and all that, but that was an expensive change for them to make. I still see the largest of large companies, the Microsofts, the Oracles, the SAPs, very reluctant to have customer events. They will have their own events, 
but the industry events are, have been tough. But I'm seeing associations come back in, which is great. I have a number of clients uh, over the next few months that I'm excited because we couldn't work together in the last couple of years. So I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's not like it was before. But something I want to share that is real important, um, when we went into the recession in 2008 and nine, a number of us lost 80% of their business. Mm -hmm. It was maybe as bad, if not worse than the pandemic, because I think uh, the pandemic, enough of us were doing virtual events by, you know, I don't know how many webinars I was doing in 2008, I, mm -hmm. maybe a few, right, right. I've been, do, you know, so I've been doing virtual events for years, but I don't think that was even, I mean, to do that took a lot of expensive equipment and internet bandwidth, et cetera. So we didn't have that. It was, you speak and sell books and maybe that's it. Maybe do some training. And I remember talking to a friend of mine that did a hundred and some odd dates and he was down to four dates that year, wow. four. And my calendar was pretty full. And he said, how do you do that? I said, I smile and I dial. I get on the phone. You're right. A lot of people aren't having meetings, but guess what? There are people that are still, are companies that are still having meetings and they, not all of them, but some of them will hire speakers. And we just keep calling till we find the ones that do. And we keep calling till they finally say yes. And, and by the way, I would, the reason I bring that up is because I've said from the very beginning, this is the best way to get business. The fastest, quickest way is to do a specific outbound call, connect, and build that relationship. If business gets tough, and I've said it for years, we will go back to that. We will not rely upon my content marketing and my reputation. For the last two years, I haven't been on stage. That means I haven't been able to do a booking and have somebody from that audience say, hey, we want you for our meeting next year. Okay. Yeah. That hasn't happened in two years. I will be lucky to do 20 or 30 engagements this year. Now, I'm going to do, in the past, I've done maybe 10 to 15 virtual events, I will do 50 virtual events, which now that we're back to what I would call doing live events and not quite normal, but my fees for virtual are creeping back up to what I get normally paid to do a regular engagement. Yeah. So I could end up at the end of this year better off than I was pre-pandemic. Not the same business model because I'm doing so much offstage. Uh, also offstage, um, I do, I have my on-demand training. We did our virtuals. I also do sponsorships. You can sponsor my annual report on customer service and experience. You can sponsor my YouTube channel. You can sponsor my blog. You can sponsor my podcast. Mm -hmm. And there is a fee associated with that. And, and companies want to be a part of that if you're entrenched in their industry. Again, you've been in the industry almost 40 years, which is not super common and also something that certainly in, in any industry, but especially when it comes to the speaking industry, what do you feel like has given you the staying power, both in terms of, of being able to consistently do this, but also just for you personally, because being a speaker is a lot of fun, but it's also, it can be very tiring. It's very draining. <laughs> you spend a lot of time in hotels on a lot of flights, a lot of time away from family, and it can just, mm -hmm. it can be a grind and it's a non-sexy, non-glamorous sure. part of being a speaker that, you know, sometimes gets overlooked. So what's helped you to have a successful career over 40 plus years? Sure. I'm a very happy guy. Um, that's, that's, and I, I am very, um, I have a lot of interests. So I, I love to read and I read a lot of business books. I do magic tricks, as you know, so I still buy magic books. I have friends in every city. And if I have time, I make it a point to have dinner or breakfast with a friend. Uh, and I have the most incredible support at home. Um, this is real important. I dated a girl prior uh, to meeting my wife who I've now been married to um, over 30 years. When uh, every time I go out to do a gig, we'd get into a fight because she couldn't stand being alone. Mm. 
Hmm. And I, 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 we finally broke up. I go, I'm never going to date a girl that doesn't get it. So uh, I got really lucky. I met a girl whose dad traveled a lot during the week mm-hmm. and played golf every Sunday. Oh man, is this perfect? So I <laughs> playing golf <laughs> and, and, uh, and she's extremely supportive and never once has ever made me feel really guilty about going out and, and well, strike that in the late 1980s, going into the early nineties, I was doing in a tremendous, I did 180 dates, 180 plus dates one year. Wow. She said to me, one day you're going to come home and the house is going to be empty. There will be no one here other than you and your clothes. That's it. And she made it real clear that I was way out of balance. And I got it. Um, You can make enough money. You can make more than enough money, which is what I encourage everybody to try to do. Because by more than enough money, you could save for the future. Mm -hmm. But when you start to make more than more than enough, and which is where I was, and it was impacting my personal life to the point where I could lose the most important thing in the world to me, my wife and my kids. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I get the message loud and clear. And I've been very lucky in, in, that that happened at the time that it did. Um, so I get a lot of support. You're right. Being on stage isn't, is, is the fun part, so to speak. Everything else around it is, you know, you, you do a lot to get to that 45 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever your hour, whatever you're on stage. But um, if you think about it, I love the hunt as much as I love the feast. I agree. So I enjoy getting to the client, building the relationship, getting them excited about the event, deciding what we're going to talk about. And then we send the contract and I go, okay, now, now what do I do? That was kind of so much fun. Okay. <laughs> I told someone that recently. I, I, I'd almost, it's almost more fun booking the gig than doing the gig, you know, yeah, and doing, yeah. doing the gig's a lot of fun, but booking it and just kind of that, like you said, the thrill of the hunt of it and following up and following up and following up. And, and then, you know, it works out, uh, is, is really enjoyable. And so I remember early on just having a, a friend tell me, you have to fall in love with the process, you know, and fall in love with the process mm-hmm. of showing up, doing the work, smiling and dialing, doing whatever it takes to book the gigs. And that, you know, it's a lot of work, but you can certainly build a, a sustainable long-term business doing that. Yeah. Johnny Carson was my idol growing up. And one of the things that always, my parents actually let me watch Johnny Carson when I was like 13, 14 years old. They let me stay up to watch the monologue. That was all I was allowed to do. You know, it's time to go to bed. But Carson used to say, show business is two words, show and business. Hmm. Very few people have both sides of their brains working, the right and the left, the creative and the analytical. He did. People don't realize it. He brought in those sponsors. He would sit down with the business side of of NBC, uh, who he worked for, and talk about how they were going to make this show successful. And then he would sit down with the writers and help write content and then go out and perform it. He was the total package. That was my idol. That's what I wanted to be. And as speakers, as entrepreneurs, we have to have both sides of our brains working. It's the speaking business, two words. So we've got to be able to do both. And or have the savvy and ability and probably the pocketbook in order to hire somebody to support you to do the things that you don't like doing. But in the beginning, you're probably going to do it all. Um, I, I went to Dan Sullivan's strategic coach program for over mm-hmm. 20 years. And one of the things I learned is there is a, we, we track everything I did in my business. Uh, I'm at the fax machine. Remember that? I'm at the copy machine. Uh, I'm writing a thank you note to a client. I'm on the phone with a client. There were 45 or 46 different tasks that I did in my business other than doing the speech. I wrote them down. My assistant wrote them down. And then we sat down and we said, how many of these do I really need to be doing? Yeah. And we, we, we got it down to like 16 
of the 45 things. We cut it in third. And they were all, for the most part, you, if you would consider writing up a letter, writing a thank you note, those were two. They could be considered the same. Getting on the phone for the pre-booking call, the content call, the follow-up debrief. Those are all, fo- those, so those are the types of things that I should be doing and nothing else. If I was seen going into the product room to pack a box of books, my assistant is supposed to say, Chef, go back in your office and get on the phone. Yeah. That's what you do to bring money in here. I pack the books. Okay. So we've got to find out what we're supposed to do and what we're good at. And even if we're supposed to do it, we're not real good at, but we have to do it ourselves. We better get good at it. But what shouldn't we be doing? Let others do it. And at a certain point in time in your career, you'll be able to say, you know, I probably shouldn't be on the phone negotiating my fees. That isn't cool for somebody at a higher level as much as maybe it's a more appropriate for somebody that charges less. So somebody on my team actually sets that call up. Now, I may have to come in and close the the business uh, and make sure that they're comfortable and they're getting the value and talk about the different things I can do. But that's how it works. So I know we're kind of going all over the place, but hopefully there's some nuggets of wisdom in here. Absolutely. And we've covered a lot of ground. We may have to have you back for a part two. I want to be respectful of your time. So absolutely. Uh, I'm, ready. Been, I'm ready. No, this has been super, super fun. Sheps, thank you so much for sharing all your, your uh, insights and, and wisdom with us. Uh, if people want to find out more about you and check out your website, where, where can we go? Yeah, just go to hiking.com, H-Y-K-E-N. And then uh, I'll be at the National Speakers Association meeting in Nashville, your hometown, mm-hmm. this coming July. Yeah, so man. maybe we'll all get to hang out together there. Looking forward to it. Chef, thanks for the time, man. We appreciate it. All right. Take care, man. All right. There you have it. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Speaker Lab podcast. Now, I want you to know that we do this podcast simply because we want to serve and support speakers like you. We don't charge anything for you to listen, but in return, we do have one small favor to ask. Would you be willing to subscribe to the podcast where you're listening right now? Hit that subscribe button. Also, leave us a rating and review within iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to these podcasts. We read every single one of them, and they also help other people to find the show. Also, if you are looking to take the next step in growing your speaking business, be sure and check out thespeakerlab.com. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com. We've got a ton of free resources and tools there, and you can also learn more about the programs that we offer, which include one-on-one coaching. Our mission here is to help you find the confidence, clarity, and clear path that you need to own your speaking success. So again, check us out over at thespeakerlab.com. As always, we appreciate you hanging out with us and we'll catch you next time. You're awesome.